Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, as the Easter season draws to a close, we hear from one of the most magnificent passages in the Gospel of John, namely the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's a long discourse he utters the night of the Last Supper, so the night before he dies. And of course, in John's Gospel, we don't have an account of the institution of the Eucharist, which you find in the synoptics. You find the account of the washing of the feet, and then this long discourse, which is by far the longest speech given by Jesus anywhere in the New Testament. And and I think it just repays constant study and reading, because in some ways, the seeds of all of Christian spirituality are there. You can find the whole Christian thing in this high priestly discourse. So what I want to do is in this homily is just necessarily briefly, but look at some of these major um, motifs. Here are the first words of the Lord that we overhear. It's like we're given a privileged access. It's as though we're in the room with Jesus and the uh, apostles. So we hear him say, Holy Father, keep them in your name that you've given me so that they may be one just as we are one. Now, of course, it's an extraordinary thing because we're not hearing just a prophet or a great teacher talking to God. I mean, there are a thousand examples of that, I suppose. What we're hearing is the Son of God speaking to his Father. So we're, we're inside the life of the Trinity. We're inside God's own most nature, which is a community of love, right? The Father looks to the Son, the Son looks to the Father, the two of them fall in love, and their mutual love is the Holy Spirit. That's the unity that God is, a communio, right? It's a union with others. So what's God's purpose vis-a-vis the world? And this is true now throughout the Bible. This is the whole Bible. His purpose is to draw the world into his unity. God is a great gathering force, right? So again, Holy Father, keep them in your name so that they may be one just as we are one. That's that's the gathering force of God speaking about his purpose in the world. Now, you see concomitantly that Everything that's opposed to God, we call it sin, is therefore always divisive. Right? The great origin of Alexandria said, ubi divisio, ibi peccatum. Where there's division, there's sin. And I used to tell my students when I was teacher and rector at the seminary, uh, that's a good principle pastorally. So when you go into your parish, all right, where's their division? That's where there's sin. Spend a little bit of time, I would tell them, looking around, but find out where the divisions are obtaining, and that's where sin is. 
And that's where I would tell them, you got to go. You got to enter into that and try to bring it to unity. So the father sends the son into the world. So as to draw it into unity with the divine nature. A little bit earlier in the high priestly prayer, we have that famous uh, utterance of Jesus. It's often cited in Latin. Ut unum sint. That they might be one. Ut unum sint. It's Jesus' prayer to the Father vis-a-vis his whole community, that they might be one. That's, that's the great and permanent prayer of Jesus vis-a-vis his church. And it stands, by the way, behind all efforts at Christian ecumenism. Once in a while, people will say to me, what's the point of ecumenism? Why are we bothering? And why are we reaching out to the Protestants and all that? Well, it's not a choice we have. I mean, it's that's Vatican II's teaching. It's just a permanent part of the life of the church because ut unum sint, that they might be one is Jesus' prayer. So we can't give up on it. I mean, how could we? We'd be standing athwart Jesus. Then we hear this. The Lord says, I speak this in the world so that they may share my joy completely. Put that up on your um, on your refrigerator if you're old school. Put it on your computer um, screensaver if you're younger. There's all of Christianity in a way. Right? I speak this so that they may share my joy completely. My hero, Thomas Aquinas, was asked uh, one time, what does God do all day? And his answer was, he enjoys himself. <laughs> a great answer. Meaning, God rests in his own supreme goodness and takes infinite delight in it. That's what God does all day. But since bonum difisivum sui, that great line from Plato, the Platonic tradition, the good is diffusive of itself. When you're in a good mood, you tend to be diffusive. You tend to go out from yourself. You want to share the joy you have. So since bonum difisivum sui, God's delight in himself spills over into creation. He wants nothing more than to share his joy with us. That's the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian spiritual life. See, everything else in the Christian spiritual life, any sort of moral discipline, asceticism, et cetera, et cetera, all these, if you want more negative or darker things, they are in service of this. I've come that you might have joy. That's the purpose of the spiritual life. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Don't be misled by a sort of um, joyless Puritanism. That's that's not it. As I say, whatever there is, and there is plenty of room for discipline and all that in the, in the spiritual life, but it's in service of greater joy. Okay, then we hear from the lips of the Lord a balancing truth. Listen. I gave them your word, and the world hated them because they do not belong to the world. St. John famously distinguishes between two senses of the word world in the gospel. On the one hand, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So the world is something wonderful. It means God's creation, what God wants to save. That's the world. But on the other hand, we hear in John that the devil is the prince of this world. And if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting to save me, right? And so in the negative sense, world, cosmos in in, uh, John's Greek, designates 
that whole conjuries of attitudes, institutions, structures, wicked acts that stand athwart the purposes of God. Right? The world. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the great enemies. That's the negative sense of it. That whole range of attitudes, institutions, structures, acts that that stand athwart God's purpose. Now, I would say, everybody, it's impossible to get out of bed in the morning and not confront the world in this negative sense. I mean, it hits you. If you get out of bed and you look at your Facebook feed or you look at the morning news, you'll be hit with the world in this negative sense. Therefore, what? Therefore, we should not be the least surprised that we who belong to Jesus, who walk his path, or at least endeavor to walk his path, will be hated by the world. Right? You know, if you're in this game for universal popularity, you're, you're <laughs> that's a losing proposition. If you're in the Christian game and you're expecting, boy, everyone's going to love me, well, good luck with that plan, because they won't. In the measure that you walk the path of Jesus, you will be hated by the world in this negative sense of the term. That's why the Lord says, beware when all men speak well of you. Again, I would tell my seminary students that a number of times, you know, hey, I'm in the parish and absolutely everybody, everybody loves me. Everyone loves what I'm saying. Well, <laughs> that's not altogether good. Beware when all men speak well of you, because maybe you're not speaking uh, the gospel truth. You know, I, I've always loved Winston Churchill's line. Uh, a man has enemies? Good. It means he stood for something. That's bracing stuff, isn't it? It's good. It's healthy. Do you have some enemies? Good. I'm glad. That means that you stand for something in life. You know, someone that's got no enemies is just just kind of bland. Um, maybe you're just staying at the level of the platitudinous. You know, you're you're not taking a stand. You're not making a commitment. You're not saying anything that's really worth saying. So, oh yeah, everybody likes <laughs> him or her. Well, so what? That's nothing to be proud of. It, the main thing is it's not so much having enemies. It's having the right enemies. Right? It's having enemies that belong to the world. Then you know you're following the Lord. You know, keep this in mind, everyone. In a way, unless you're hated by the world, you're not following the one whose life ended on a cross. See, you know, I'm I'm following Jesus. Well, good, that's discipleship. But following Jesus always conduces toward the cross because that's where he's going, right? So it's a very bracing uh, but important truth. Then we hear this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, precisely because the world is so opposed to the way of Jesus, it's always tempting for Christians more or less to, to give up or to flee or to escape. Let's, let's go live in private enclaves or we can cultivate the life of discipleship. Now, anyone that's been following me knows that, that I get it. Sometimes the church has to hunker down in order to preserve its life against a hostile culture. But the ultimate purpose of the church is never hunkering down or escaping. It's the transformation of the culture. The church always exists for the world. So if God simply took us out of the world, he'd be removing the leaven necessary for the rising of the dough, right? to use that image. 
Now, how does the church go about this great missionary work? Well, listen again as the Lord continues to pray to the Father. He says, consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. To consecrate means to make holy, and to be made holy is to be made a participant in the divine life. And this happens, the Lord is telling us, through the truth. Now, it's another point of extraordinary challenge for the church today, for truth has been, in both the high and low culture, largely relativized. My truth, your truth, but nothing even approaching the truth. Everything is subjectivized, relativized. Claims to the truth have been seen as disguised grasps of power. But see, as long as this postmodern perspective holds sway, we are not going to be consecrated. And as long as we're not consecrated, we're not going to be missionaries who will fulfill the purpose of transforming the world. It's as simple as that. Therefore, everybody, an immersion in the church's truth is indispensable. Don't tell me that books and theology and profound thought are irrelevant to the church's pastoral mission. Absolutely not. Remember, Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I mean, finally, truth is not a matter of ideas. It's a matter of Jesus. Being consecrated to the truth means being immersed in the power of his being. Okay. So, if you want a pastoral program on one page, you want Christian theology on one page, I suggest meditate on this magnificent passage from the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.